Greetings and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. My guest today is Martha Bueno. Martha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. I appreciate this. It's a pleasure having you here. So you are not here in person in the Keys, but you're not too far away. Are you in Miami right now? I am. I live in Miami-Dade. How long uh, have for you? For pretty much my whole life. <laughs> so your, your entire life, have you spent time outside of Miami? Yeah. So I grew up between Miami and Venezuela. So that's why I say almost my entire life. I was nine days old the first time my parents took me to Venezuela and I had been back and forth uh, from there until I was about 15. I lived there a solid six years from like nine to 15 and then came back to the U.S. So I haven't left Miami-Dade pretty much uh, since then. I've just traveled around, but this is my home base. It's I love it here. So you were in Venezuela when you were young, but it, this was before the rise of Chavez and uh, and others, Maduro and so forth? Right. I left Venezuela. The last time I was in Venezuela was in 1995. I have not been back since then. And that was before Chavez took power um, in Venezuela. But we already knew of him. And um, I remember specifically father warning other Venezuelans. My parents are Cuban. And I remember when I was a child, my, my father used to tell his friends, like, this can happen here. And his friends would be like, no, not in Venezuela. That'll never happen. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a long time that, that we've been um, discussing Maduro and Chavez and what that would look like for Venezuela. And I think we've seen it. So for those who don't know, what is what is what was he warning about? What does that mean, this happening here? Oh, sure. Of course. Um, so the rise of socialism is something that happened in Venezuela slash now um, or since Chavez took over, there's sort of a dictatorship. I mean, I don't know if it's officially that, but there is a um, a party in Venezuela that is in charge of absolutely everything. And they came in and they took um, land from people. They expropriated businesses um, similar to what happened in Cuba in 1959. So a similar tract to what happened in Cuba before. One of the interesting things uh, about these kind of socialist movements in South America, and for the listeners who don't know, I was in Bolivia for a few years, about 20-odd years ago, and there was definitely an undercurrent of uh, of socialism there. And uh, in fact, uh, shortly after I left, uh, Evo Morales uh, took over, and he was from uh, a party that had socialismo in the name of it. Um, but there was a, a certain level of affection, baseline affection among people down there for these kind of movements, which seems odd given the results of these movements throughout history. They don't tend to end well or go well. What do you think it is about the, what is it that makes it saleable down there? I don't think it's just sellable down there. Let's look around us. It's sellable here. We call, we see young kids asking for socialism. And I think socialism has at its root a very uh, noble cause, right? We want everybody to have equal um, food and health care and so on. And so the cause is very noble, which is what sells it. But the reality of how you achieve that, um, and, and we're, we're seeing more and more in the United States, it's not a call for equality, it's a call for equity. And I think it's that distinction that people don't quite understand. What is um, What would lead to more equality is an equal playing field, not equity. Equity is where we all have the same results. And when you have socialism, we all have the same results. We're all poor, we all can't find food, we all struggle. Um, if you have... Though it, should, though it should be noted that the historically, um, almost every case, or perhaps every case, uh, the not everybody starves under socialism. Oh, absolutely not. The elites don't starve. So that's the problem with this: is that there's, you know, if you look at Cuba today, there is there are two social classes. There's everybody, and then there's the political elite. We see that in the United States to some degrees, uh, not equals. For example. Um, you know, our president, his son has a very 
uh, well-known drug addiction. For most drug addicts in the United States, that equals jail or that equals a loss of opportunities. Uh, they're unhirable uh, because of their past, maybe because they've they've committed a crime and, and gone to jail or for whatever reason or, you know, whereas Hunter Biden doesn't see those those effects. As a matter of fact, he's now a prominent artist whose art sells for half a million dollars. Surely, surely because it's so amazing, though, right? I mean, I haven't seen his art, so I'm not going to comment on that. I mean, he may very well be an amazing artist. What I do note is that, you know, he's been caught in, in several scandals and using drugs and, you know, and he has no repercussions. So it's a matter of two different classes of people um, that, that this process creates, you know, the elite, the well-off, and then the rest of us. And we see that throughout history. You know, Hitler was not starving himself. You know, it's, it's never it's never the people at the top that suffer the consequences that they want for the rest of us. Well, certainly the any any system of power is going to take care of itself. This is true historically for pretty much all of human history. The people with power, they use that power to insulate themselves from reality on the ground, whether that reality is scarcity or any kind of shock to the system. I think one of the things that surprised me the most over the past year and a half was just how tolerant we seem to be here in the United States with a system in which the elites insulate themselves from the repercussions of policy while at the same time creating policies that are so destructive for, in particular, thinking about the lockdowns for all those people who had jobs as a waitress or other things where they actually had to show up and were told, no, you need to go home and you're not allowed to work. I don't know what it is that's changed that's made or if there's some seeds in there that Americans have always had some level of tolerance for a two-tiered society, but uh, they they seem to have no problem at all with it over the past year and a half. Isn't that funny? Isn't it funny that the United States, the same group of people that, you know, in the 1700s, we we had a revolution because of, uh, you know, attacks on tea of all things, or, or, you know, this elite class ruling over us, we're the same people that are now saying, but if only it saves one life, you know, let's destroy the economy because it can potentially save a few people. It, it, it does seem rather odd that we're embracing this system. To be honest, I wish I had an answer for you as to why. I think, it, you know, and it's it's been said so many times, it's the boiling of the frog, right? It didn't start off like this. They didn't just immediately go from that society to one where we're like, well, if it saves one life, it's happened over time and it's slowly, and we've given more and more power to this government, this elite ruling class over us. And so now it's almost normalized while they're telling us what's best for us, which is what I, you know, hope to bring to people uh, when I speak is, is, you know, let's look around us. Let's look at those things that we're now we're saying are normal that have not historically been normal. And let's let's remove this assumption that government does it for our own well-being. There's so many um, things that we can point to and say, look, government didn't care about you there. I mean, they're telling us that they're doing all these things for our health. But let's look at the laws that they've put in place. It's literally illegal to purchase medicine across the border, even though it's the same medicine for cheaper. So if that is the case, if you could get medicine that could potentially save your life for cheaper, wouldn't the government encourage you to take this medicine because it's going to save your life? But instead, you could wind up in jail or lose some freedoms based on the fact that you're going across the border. And that could be Mexico. That could be Canada. That could be India. You could you could order your medicine online these days and have it delivered to your door. But we're saying, no, that's wrong for you. You have to buy it at all the prices that we're saying they are worth here in the United States. So, I mean, I just want to push back on this narrative. that Our elected officials are always looking out for our well-being because historically that's not the case. And I think we've been forgetting this. It, it, it's surprising how often we forget that, or there's the corollary of that, that, you know, that politicians are awful and uh, Congress has a terrible approval rating, but my particular Congress critter is the one who is fighting for me and therefore will get 
reelected. Uh, but I actually want to go back to what you'd said earlier about the kind of the boiling the frog analogy. There's a, a, a wonderful quote from one of the Hemingway uh, books and a, a shout out to the Hemingway house here in Key West. They hosted the very first guest for my upcoming TV show. There's a, a quote there, the, a character asks, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer is two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Uh, which I, I think captures the moment. It's also for a while my pinned tweet uh, was that the problem with slippery slopes is that sooner or later you end up in free fall. And I think maybe that's the only way I could understand what had happened, that we had been on a slippery slope, we had been gradually sliding into something, and then all of a sudden we fell off the cliff. I, I think you said it beautifully actually that's that's a great way of putting it we have fallen off the cliff we've fallen off the cliff where not only have we said hey government you can go ahead and do whatever you want to me and i will accept it but we kind of got to this point where we're just inherently saying government is the ruler of all of us government can tell us you know to vaccinate our children despite the fact that we know that children don't have um really a high risk of, of COVID, you know, um, I have four children myself, my kids have not been vaccinated and they've all, they all got COVID well before it was, um, you know, that the vaccine was even available. And now to be told, well, despite that you should vaccinate them. Now we're going to say five to 11 year olds uh, can be vaccinated. Um, you know, if you're a parent and you want to do that, that's on you. Sure. Go ahead. But I don't want the government telling me what I have to do with my children. And I think the reason that I am so, um, that this, this is so sensitive for me because I come from a place, Cuba, where people don't own their children. The state owns the kids. The state can take your children, um, which is what happens, and send them to military training uh, for months out of the year, um, every year, in you know, past the age of 13. I don't want the government to take my children and do whatever they want with them. So I am very, very sensitive to this. The government saying you are now going to vaccinate your child or they're not going to be able to do these things. I'm not OK with that. And they've been saying that about us as well. But, you know, I think the, it relating to our children is where, um, you know, we need to start realizing that um, it's that slippery slope has come and gone, like you said, and we're in free fall. The government should not ever be able to tell us what to do with our children. Um, that's just my feeling on that. One of the. One of the things I think that that shows how much we're in freefall is just how, I guess you'd say, honest the American communists have been about their intentions and their desires. Right now, we are seeing a full-on war against the autonomy of parents, and I know that that's often used hyperbolically that in terms of culture wars and so forth, or war on you know Christmas or things like that. But it is very hard for me to understand or to view, let's just say, the the extent to which American communists are saying things like, you have no right to be involved in your child's education, you have no right to make medical decisions for your children, and so on and so forth. The the fact that they are openly saying these things indicates to me that they believe that that is the case, that we are in free fall now, and that they have a level of control over the culture and the institutions such that the kind of things that would have been unthinkable to say or advocate for 10 years ago are now maybe within grasp or seem like it to them. It's acceptable now. It's acceptable for somebody to say that you don't have the right to educate your child as you see fit. I mean, that's insane. They are your children. And, and regardless of, you know, who made these, these, these people in power, who made them the rulers of what we can and cannot do with our children? You know, if I see fit that my kids learn a particular religion or a particular, it might not be what's best for them but it is my decision as their parent. And I will always advocate for parents to have the ability to choose. Now, of course, there's, you know, they always bring up the worst case scenario. What about parents that abuse their kids? Yes, and I agree. Parents who abuse their kids should not be able to abuse their children. But the vast majority of people have kids 
not to abuse them. The vast majority of people want the best for their kids. And so to say that, like, for example, government, well, you have to send your kid to this school because that's the school in your neighborhood and government has to provide this. Government provides assistance to the poor, to the needy, for example, in terms of food stamps or some sort of assistance. And they don't tell them you must go to this supermarket. They tell them, here's the money, spend it however you'd like on whichever foods pretty much, you know, within reason that you're going to spend it on. So why is it that we've allowed government to say your child has to go to this particular school? No two kids are alike. I, as I mentioned, I have four. All four of my kids are very different and their schooling might be different. You know, maybe you have a child that has a lot more energy and he wants to go to more creative school versus one that might be more intellectual and wants to go to maybe a more challenging school. Why does government, based on your location, choose where your children are going to go to school? They should leave the decision in the hands of parents. Um, and that's, you know, without even getting into why is government in charge of educating our kids? <laughs> for, for sure. Uh, how is education done in Cuba? I think you do have your both your parents were from there and you have a fair amount of experience trying to understand that society. How did they do things? Um, you know, it's funny because it's kind of comparable to here. So when children go to school and they wear uniforms, of course, mm -hmm. they show up to school every morning they have this uh, recital that they have to say, and it's, it basically ends with, we are going to be just like Che, che Guevara. Um, pioneers for uh, revolution will be like Che. And they have to recite this, and they have to recite, um, you know, their, their love for their state. And, um, you know, I know that I, most people will not like what I'm about to say, but that reminds me of the Pledge of Allegiance. Why are we pledging our allegiance to a flag? We should be pledging our allegiance maybe to the ideas of the Constitution. But just because it's American doesn't mean that it's the best idea ever or that we have to support it. So in Cuba, you have this brainwashing of children for the state. Um, you know, going back in history in the 62 years of communism in Cuba, um, there was this thing that teachers would often do and would say, children, pray to God for, you know, ice cream. And for months, these children would pray to God for ice cream and it would never show up. And then the teachers would say, hey, now we're going to pray Fidel and we're going to say, hey, Fidel, can you please bring us ice cream? And either that day or the next day, ice cream would show up. And so they would brainwash these kids into this is the state. We will provide everything for you. You don't need more than the state. And not to that degree. But that's kind of what we're doing now. We basically say you won't get any help unless it's from the state. You won't be able to eat unless the state helps people. You know, the state is the only one that can help people in these circumstances. So, um, you know, education in Cuba is a funny, funny thing when you look at it from um, outside. But then as you start comparing it to, to things that we see now common in the United States, um, I think that's where... We really are, you know, it's a very slippery slope that we are on. And it's, it's scary. It's scary that this is what we're embracing these, these like little tidbits that lead us in that direction. I think certainly one of those would be uh, UBI, universal basic income, which was floated, uh, I guess, in the, the past presidential election from Yang as one of the proponents of that. And then we got a little bit of that when uh, governments forcibly shut down a huge number of businesses, took away a ton of people's jobs, and then gave them back a small amount of money as a compensation, of course, reminding me of the, the old quote about, you know, government breaking your leg and then handing you a crutch and then expecting you to be grateful uh, for that crutch. But that that was that kind of scenario where you were uh, told to go do something and then given sort of free, in air quotes, of course, money that was going to be able to sustain you during that time period uh, when, you know, when you were not allowed to work. But of course, once the government is dripping money into your veins, then uh, all control over your own autonomy and over your livelihood, well, you, you know, you are now dependent on that IV drip. We didn't even do a good job of that. Think about, you know, how the government could have done it. We even fail at giving away free money to people. We could have given them actual livable wages during these months that they were closed down. And then they would have had so much less dissent 
amongst those people that that they were helping. You know, we do such a poor job with the United States government that we can't even give free like give money away. Well, you know, let's look at countries like Australia. They have this overwhelming population that's saying, yes, we need to be locked down and we need to be safe. And why is that? Well, they're getting thousands of dollars every month in their bank account. So it really isn't affecting them to stay home yet. Of course, this will change. We know that nothing in life is free and, you know. Nothing is. And we're up against a break here. I am talking with Martha Bueno and we will be right back on Keys Talk FM. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with Martha Bueno, and we have been talking about a variety of topics, often related to Cuba and Venezuela and uh, other places that have gone communist. I want to pick up by talking a little bit about uh, Ernesto Che Guevara, uh, who has seen a, a positive image in a lot of places among certain sets of people. Certainly when I lived in South America, he, uh, he was generally well regarded by, especially by young folks, but also by older folks too. Bolivia, where, where I was, is actually where he was killed, captured and killed, um, and had his hand cut off. But uh, there, as in lots of other places, they wear the t-shirts that are the iconic image of Che. How How is it that this person who really didn't have a history that one would think would be romanticizable, how is it that he ended up on so many t-shirts? I wish I knew the answer to this. Now, you definitely got me with a great question because I've been asking myself this quite a bit. Um, As a matter of fact, one of the biggest head scratchers for me is the LGBT community that uh, you often see his face on posters or even on the flag, you know, on the pride flag. So I am very curious as to how he managed to get romanticized to that point. Um, What I will say is Che Guevara was a horrible human being. Um, murdered people point blank. Um, you know, here in the United States, we obviously believe in due process. Well, there was no due process in Cuba. Che Guevara, you know, he would um, murder people for not being of his political persuasion. Um, che Guevara was also tasked with the economics of Cuba, and he um, was the, one of the architects of the system that they have in place now that is Um, Basically, the government owns everything and people, if it's not provided by the government, people don't have it, which is why they don't have food and they don't have access to things. So Che Guevara, to me, is one of the worst uh, people that ever walked the earth. He's up there for me with uh, Fidel Castro and, you know, Hitler and Mao. And there's plenty of, of very horrible people. He is among them. How we've gotten to this point where you have leaders like the British royal family that goes to Cuba and stands in front of a an image of Che Guevara and there's allowed pictures taken of them or how you have somebody like Jay-Z, you know, Che Guevara hated people of color. So for Jay-Z to be wearing him on his shirt, um, I don't understand it. To be honest, I wish I had an answer, but I just, I scratch my head with this one all the time. So I think uh, it is, it's something that confuses me, though I was actually listening to one of your other talks, and you talked about the efforts that the Communist Party, in in Cuba in particular, put into essentially creating mythology, mythos, and, you know, and and an alternative history of what happened. Uh, Perhaps that's been one of the the keys to the successful uh, sort of push of his image as as a saint. That could be it. It could also be that we just don't read enough. We don't, we aren't curious creatures anymore because Che Guevara has books that he wrote with his own, um, you know, efforts. He wrote about his his murdering of people. He wrote letters to his father in which he described, um, you know, how much he enjoyed it, how much he enjoyed killing people that were he considered less than him. Who did he consider less than him? Um, men and people of color. And these are the two groups that have embraced him. And I just don't get it. To me, this is almost insulting how um, these groups have have embraced somebody that was the absolute opposite of what they represent. I mean, and I wish that there was an easy way to go out there and say, hey, guys, 
this should never be who you guys idolize, but it's just not. People don't really talk about this. They don't even here in the West. I think maybe one of the problems is that the people who are the most interested in it are the people who are the most self-interested in it. Uh, they are the people who have a vested interest in pushing a particular vision of the of the revolution in Cuba, except in Miami, where there are a lot of Cuban exiles. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the Cuban community on the ground there in Miami is, is really like, because this is something that I actually don't I know a little bit about it of the Cuban community here in Key West, and there is a, a significant one. But just to what extent does that uh, inform the politics there in Miami? I think the worst thing you could be here is a communist, to be honest. Um, if you are a politician in Miami and you believe in communist ideals, that's almost um, that's almost like a nail in your coffin. Uh, we currently have somebody that's running for a commissioner in District Three, um, and you know, yesterday somebody posted around he was the attorney for the uh, the Maduro regime, and I was like, well, is that the only thing that that makes him you know bad or evil in these people's minds? And then I I started looking him up, and the first thing that I read about him is he's a socialist. Oh, well. That changes everything. If you're a socialist, no wonder people were telling me this is definitely not a good person. The people here in Miami, we are very um, sensitive to socialism, to communism, um, because in Miami, not only do you have the largest Cuban diaspora of the world, but you also now have Venezuelans here and you have Nicaraguans here and Colombians and people who've had to flee their country because the situation is so bad that they couldn't be there. Um, I think people don't often recognize, we look at immigration, we look at the border crisis, we look at these things and we're like, those people. Well, who are those people? Those people are all of us. They are those people who can't live in their countries, who the situation is so bad in their country that the only thing they can do is to get up and leave. I think that should be looked at in a different light. You know, what would it take for you to leave the United States and go live somewhere else um, and start fresh, start from zero with no family, no friends, no nothing? It is a brave act to move, but it is one that you take mostly in desperation. Um, and I think that as Americans, we've we all came to this country pretty much, except for obviously uh, natives, but we pretty much all came here leaving a system, leaving a government that was evil, that was tyrannical, that was, you know, and now we've, not in the case of Cubans, because ours is recent history, but in the case of people that fled and have been here for many generations, they tend to forget these stories. They tend to forget why it is that people move to better situations. And there is a bit of demonizing um, of immigrants. But in Miami, I think that doesn't happen because we are all freshly immigrants. We all just left that system. And we're like, yeah, we definitely don't want this. We definitely do not want anyone who is socialist or communist at all. And we reject those policies, rightfully so, I believe. That's an interesting comment about the immigrants. I think that from certainly from the perspective of the kind of the mainstream of Republican thought, this is an attempt by the Democrats to import new voters, eventual new voters, uh, and just let them in because it's going to change the demographics here. Your your argument there was that these are people who have had closer contact with you know with awful regimes and therefore for will reject them while we're here. I think that there is certainly evidence among the Cuban population of that happening. Though at the same time, I would say that there there's also lots of evidence over history of people moving away from terrible places and then recreating those same terrible places in you know in the, in the new location. No. Yes, and we see that over and over again. And as a matter of fact, there are groups of Cubans that will vote for um, what what you know other Cubans will call communism or socialism, which they see as the left as. So um, when you look at, you know, there's also groups of Venezuelans that will vote for people that they consider, um, you know, left, which is what the problem that happened. The, the, I think the real problem here is, again, this romanticizing of this notion of socialism. We've all romanticized that, no, no, it's just done poorly there. Venezuela, that's not real socialism. No, no, you see, that was done poorly. Cuba, that's not real socialism. That was done poorly. Or, of course, I also get the other side where people actually believe that Cuba is this 
amazing place where uh, everybody gets medical procedures for free and everything is wonderful. And, you know, the problem is socialism has never been done right. And um, I once heard uh, a great Latin American activist, Gloria Alvarez, say something to the effect of um, socialism is like a Disney movie or is like a romantic movie where you romanticize this love affair, right? Everybody wants to have a relationship like in those romantic comedies. They, everybody wants to have that great love. And so you compare that to your actual love, your actual partner in life, which you may have an amazing relationship where you trust each other and everything's wonderful, but it just can't compare to that ideal. Now, nobody has that ideal. It's not like people are living, you know, most people don't have that, I don't know, um, whatever your ideal is of that, that relationship. Most people live with a very normal relationship and, and it just doesn't compare. It's the sparks aren't flying. It's, it's, you know, it's normal to want to look towards something else and romanticize it almost. And I think that's what we've done to socialism. We want to romanticize it. We're all going to be living this wonderful life, but that doesn't actually happen. It certainly doesn't. I'm talking here with Martha Bueno. Both of her parents were Cubans, and we're talking about the romantic image that it has. We talked about Che. I think the the second most romanticized aspect of Cuban uh, society would have to be their medical system. It's often held up as an ideal. They send out all these these doctors around the world to help cure everybody, but um, maybe we're not getting the full picture there. Absolutely. We're not getting the full picture. So first of all, the doctors in Cuba, they are what is essentially slavery. Um, most doctors in Cuba, they they get sent out to missions where the government gets paid large sums of money for their work, but they don't. They get paid you know, very small amounts of money. They get paid maybe $100 a month versus the government taking in you know, a few thousand dollars on their behalf. Um, and they don't have an option to do this. Once they reach that country, they uh, do not have their passports. They are not able to flee and their family isn't allowed to come with them. And so to stop them from fleeing. So there's, you know, there's that part of it where people are not free. You are not free to choose which profession you want to um, exercise in Cuba. You must take a test and then the government will tell you what you are qualified to study and you choose from those things. So people are not free to choose. And then there's the other side of that is what is happening to the medicine in Cuba. People in Cuba do not have access currently the average Cuban. I'm not talking about the elites. Remember, there's two different categories of Cubans. I'm talking about everybody else. The elites have access to a really great hospital with everything and great technology. That is the hospital that Michael Moore um, talked about in his movie uh, when he went to Cuba. The rest of the people have to go to, um, to, to hospitals where oftentimes you have to bribe the doctors to see you. They don't have medicine. So you have to either bring your own or be able to buy it. Um, so what good is it if you're going to get free you know, procedures, if they don't have the sutures to, or the, the, you know, the antibiotics or the whatever it is that you will need. Um, I was recently speaking to somebody who is uh, the, uh, trans, and they're like telling me that, well, that's so great that in Cuba, you can have free gender reassignment surgery. And I said, sure, if you can get the, the materials for it. So, I mean, yes, it sounds wonderful, you know, it does. And it appeals to people. It's like, oh, you mean I can have all this free stuff? If, I, if I'm a woman and I want, you know, breast enhancement, they're going to do it for me. Well, good luck finding the anesthesia for it and good luck finding the implants for it. But sure, if you can, then sure, it's free. Um, I don't think people understand the realities of what's happening in Cuba. And that's where the disconnect probably happens. The whole idea of the, the free healthcare thing is particularly interesting. So I lived in Toronto for about 13 years. They have socialized medicine there, though even that term is interesting. We have socialized medicine in the United States to a large extent. We end up spending a huge amount of our GDP that goes to the government that gets redistributed uh, to various medical you know, operations or whatever else it is. So we, we already have a, a fairly high level of a, a socialism in our own medicine mixed with the capitalism that we do have and you know and, and but people in Canada would be very proud of their own system and you know and how it was free of course it isn't totally free there are still lots and lots of aspects of medical care that you have to pay for there everything from drugs to little 
things that might seem little, like going to the hospital and you have to park. So, you know, and that's expensive. And then, you know, all the other little things that have to do with maintaining a healthy life that aren't explicitly going to a doctor. And then they have the the trade-offs not as extreme as in Cuba, but if you need a procedure, you may be on a very long waiting list and your options are to use your funds or to wait or to use your funds to make that go away either from some form of internal corruption, which does of course happen, or by going to the US or some other country and just taking care of your problem, right? So it, it, it is always interesting when people talk about free and this includes not just in the medical context, but in general, that, you know, that it's some sort of magic word that you stamp on something and then it makes all other costs and trade-offs go away. You know what I find funny about, you know, when we ask for a socialized system, we're always asking for the government to be responsible for everything. But if you take the amount of money that the government currently spends on our healthcare and you divide it by every American, there's plenty of money for the government to just say, hey, here, Matt, here's $20,000 for the year. Um, you know, use it or don't use it. This is what you have for your healthcare." You know, why is it that we never question how it gets distributed? Why is it that the government supports, you know, the pharmaceutical industry or, you know, the hospitals or whatnot? Why are they protecting these industries rather than, and it goes back to the same thing we we're talking about with education. Why is it that the government pays for the government schools and tells parents where your children can go to school? If, if government is, it wanted to give us health care or free health care or whatever it is that they're talking about, and mind you, I don't believe in any of this. I, I don't think it's the right way. But if we're going to have a discussion on the government providing for us, then let's have a full discussion. Let's talk about the fact that the United States government doesn't want to fund your your um, your health care. They just want to force you to go through the system that they are saying and that they can say, no, you're not going to get that procedure or that treatment because, you know, it's whatever the case may be, they have this control over you. It is so definitely a, a huge tool for control. Anything that is given to you can be taken away from you. When we get back, I want to ask you about your, your part of an effort to bring medicine to Cuba. And I want to talk about that and about some of the mixed feelings I have about that effort when we come back. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. I am talking with Martha Bueno, a resident of Miami with two Cuban parents, uh, exiles. And I, we're talking about Cuba a fair amount here. And I know that you are doing some work to try to bring medicine to that island. I am. Um, and I cannot take all the credit for this. But what happened, um, so for those that aren't familiar, July 11th, uh, marked a very drastic change on the island of Cuba. Um, it's the first time in its history that protests broke out throughout the island. Now, there have been protests before, but this time it was in cities all across the island and it happened spontaneously. So um, Cubans are now fighting for their freedom, something that, you know, has changed. In years past, they would make excuses for their government, maybe, or, you know, some people might have not been very happy with it, but now they're in the streets and they're begging for freedom. And the Cuban government has um, gone against them. The, the unelected president of Cuba, uh, Miguel Díaz-Canel, said that he was giving combat orders to anyone out in the street that the um, state security, the, the police, had the ability to not only arrest, but... Um, you know, do things to those who were protesting. We've seen people as young as 16 get and 15 get, get jail sentences of over a year. We've seen young boys taken from their homes um, to forced military service. So the situation is very dire in Cuba. And as I mentioned previously, medication is very difficult to find in Cuba. Um, you know, COVID is very real and Cubans are suffering through uh, COVID, and they don't have the antibiotics they need in the event that they get pneumonia. They don't have oxygen in their hospitals for those who have severe COVID. They don't have even the most basic meds like um, Tylenol and Advil and Neosporin and the things that we here in America take for granted, right? I mean, you get a headache and you just go to your cupboard and there's a full bottle of, of aspirin or something that you can take. 
Cubans don't have this luxury. So um, <clears throat> I realized that there was very little that we could do here, but we could, in essence, um, get medicine to Cuba. And we're not doing it through the government. We're doing it individually. Um, volunteering, volunteerist is something that libertarians uh, like to talk about. We want to help people um, and the government isn't needed for this. So we have been what is essentially considered smuggling medicine into Cuba. And I say it as smuggling because we can't use the official channels. I can't get a container of medication and ship it to Cuba because then the Cuban government will intercede and take it and sell it in their stores. So we basically use every legal means to get medication into Cuba. And this effort is called People for Cuba. Um, and we've been working with other groups here in Miami. Uh, Proactivo Miami has been very helpful. El Movimiento San Isidro, which are the artists on the island um, and some here in Miami that started this whole revolution. We've been working very closely with them. And now we've, we're working with um, schools, uh, Westwood Christian, uh, school here in my district um, decided to come on board and start collecting medicine too. So, so far we've gotten just over a thousand pounds of medicine into Cuba, but we are hoping to do so much more. With Westwood Christian, we uh, we now have a goal of 10,000 pounds getting that into Cuba. And we're, we are using the Baptist church as well. They have come, uh, they have a container that they claim can get into Cuba without the government assistance. So just little by little, we are um, getting that going. Our website is currently down, um, but it was People for Cuba. It should be up later today, peopleforcuba.com. And um, that is how we're collecting donations. We will have um, boxes going up around Miami. If anybody is interested in, um, you know, getting a box for their uh, for their business so that they can collect medicine, you know, come to us. We want to have as much of the community involved because this should be a community effort. I, I mentioned before the break uh, that um, I had a, a complicated relationship with these kinds of aid efforts. And uh, if anybody missed uh, the beginning of this conversation, know that every episode is wrapped up in a podcast and posted to mattasher.com where you can get our full conversation if you've missed any of it. Part of that hesitance that I have towards embracing these kinds of efforts, even though I think it's indisputable that on the ground and in the short term they do a huge amount of good, and I tend to commend people on the personal level for doing that, but I have seen from direct and experience and indirect experience and talking to lots of people that a lot of societies that are flooded with a high level of aid, uh, and that includes where I was in Bolivia, but also Haiti, the conditions on the ground don't always improve. And part of that might have to do with the fact that in order for things to get better, sometimes they have to get worse in, in the broad sense in that in order for there to be resistance against an established class that's causing problems for the people, people have to feel pain. I think that this was actually, to some extent, why people didn't push back as much against the lockdowns. They, What they had to sacrifice was maybe jobs that they didn't love if these were, um, if these were on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And in exchange, they got to stay home, play video games, and collect some money for a while, right? Whereas if you imagine trying to implement the kind of lockdown protocol 20 years ago before we had internet and before you could order anything you wanted off Amazon and have it arrive next day, the level of pain it would have caused would have caused people to push back. I believe this is a counterfactual, right? This is a hypothetical thought experiment. But uh, I think that you didn't see those kind of things in the past because the level of pain that it would have caused would have immediately led to a revolution. So getting back to your particular circumstance and what you're doing there, you know, to, to what extent do you wonder if what you're doing is just giving, you know, a, a lifeline, an IV drip uh, to the regime in the form of making life just tolerable enough for the people who you're helping such that they don't overthrow the regime? I think that's a possibility. I don't think we're getting enough aid into Cuba at the moment to really consider ourselves, you know, doing anything that would affect the regime one way or the other. To be honest, you need a lot more quantity um, to make people's lives better. I think what we're really doing and the, the brilliance of people helping people is you have to remember that Cuba for 62 years has had that indoctrination. And um, until telephones became, you know, cell phones became a thing in Cuba, before 
before everybody was able to get on the internet in Cuba, which they've only had since about 2018. So before then, they were indoctrinated to believe that they lived in the best country in the world, that everything there was better, that nobody had anything better than them, that everybody suffered the way they did with empty supermarket shelves. And then cell phones came around and were able to send pictures of what, you know, walk into a Publix here in Miami and see what our shelves look like. I assure you, it's not like Cuba and we don't have to go to different stores to buy chicken or fish. We can get it all in one place. So we are not only helping people so that they live, which I think is, you know, the humanitarian side of this. I it, Forget about politics for a minute. People are dying. And my job, I feel like my job as a human being that has abilities is to help people not die. But then on top of that, we're actually showing that there is a group of people that care. There are people that will help and it doesn't have to come from government. It's creating a community in Cuba and building a bridge to the community here in Miami because we have been separated for 62 years. And you know, this is the biggest thing that I hear Cubans on the island talk about the, the diaspora here in Miami is that we don't know their reality anymore. We are no longer connected. And that happened because of during the majority of those 62 years, we didn't have internet connection to people in Cuba and making a phone call to Cuba would cost you a few dollars a minute. So making a call to your people, you know, to your family, a 20 minute call was, you know, maybe $50. People just didn't have that kind of money. So now we are definitely more connected and I want to connect us more so that we can help them in whatever way they need. For now, it's keeping people alive. Um, in the future, hopefully it's information, diffusing information on, um, you know, however it is, whatever information they need, to be honest, to, to be able to overthrow that government or be able to make the changes that they want, not the changes we want. I think that idea of connection is particularly important. And I'll, I'll take the opposite side of, of what I said earlier, at least in the context of Cuba, one of the things that I try to be, no matter what else, is an empiricist. And one of the the policies that has broken the connection with Cuba has been the embargo. Um, and it does not seem to have worked. The embargo is a funny thing. And that's kind of like the same, the same topic I get a lot, which is the medicine, right? So Cuba has the greatest healthcare system. The embargo is the reason Cuba is the way it is. So I have to push back on the embargo. While I don't favor the embargo, and I think we should end it immediately, the embargo does not stop Cuba from receiving goods from any country in the world. As a matter of fact, the United States is one of the largest traders with Cuba in terms of medicine and in terms of chicken, which is their staple meat. <clears throat> what the embargo does is stop the United States from providing credit to Cuba. Cuba must buy our goods in cash. However, Cuba trades with uh, Mexico and, and Spain and Canada and Russia and Venezuela they trade with other people. And another thing, point that I'd like to make on this is that um, Cubans, for example, they can't fish in their oceans. Now, you remember that Cuba is an island. They should be able to feed themselves based on the waters just around them. But their government says, no, you can't fish. And if you fish, it belongs to us. So only the elite are able to eat fish. It's even a joke. Cubans in Cuba joke how they don't eat uh, fish. They call it uh, chicken for fish. They eat chicken, which they can't even grow. They have to import because at this point, the government has destroyed pretty much their industry. So um, if if that was the case, if, Q if the embargo was the reason Cuba is the way it is, then why aren't Cubans fishers? And why don't they, you know, grow their own food and, and sustain themselves? The Cuban government prevents Cubans from growing that you can't have a garden in your home. You are not allowed to. You are not allowed to raise chickens. You're not allowed to raise your own, um, you know, uh, meat. If you happen to be one of these people, and most transportation in Cuban towns happens in uh, wagons, like like 19, 1800s in the United States, legitimate wagons with horse-drawn carriages type of thing. If your horse needs to be put down, you can't eat his meat. You must alert the government and give it to the government. So it's, you know, I have to push back on this notion because it's not the embargo. We are almost out of time here on the radio part of the show. Are you okay to stick around a little bit for the podcast only segment? Excellent. 
Excellent. Maybe we'll get into uh, actually some some politics with regards to yourself. Uh, so before we wrap up, though, on the radio, maybe you could tell the uh, the listeners about your own involvement uh, that's happening right now in politics and where they can find more of your stuff and thinking. Sure. So I am running for local office. I would like to become a commissioner for my area. I'm running for Miami-Dade commissioner in District 10. Um, it's a nonpartisan seat. And if they'd like more information, uh, they can go to my marthabueno.com, which is the website, or I'm on every social media as Bueno for Miami. And I should note, you're, you are popping on social media. You've uh, gained followers at an astounding rate. And I do recommend people go and check out your Twitter feed. Uh, Martha, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks again for having me. Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show After Party, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. I am still talking with Martha Bueno, and we were talking about social media. Let's. Uh, how how did you manage to uh, grow your following so quickly? I'm just kind of curious because how many followers have you gained in the last month? So in the last two months, I've gained almost ten thousand followers. Um, I, before that, I had just hit the ten thousand mark. And I, I wish I could tell you I have the secret sauce and I know the way to do it. I absolutely don't. It's, I think I started just really tweeting so much more against the, you know, pushing back against the government. I think that really has um, hit a chord with people. But 10,000 followers in two months, you know, I was just saying that 10,000 followers in general is the top 1% of Twitter already. Um, there are very few accounts past that. And then, of course, the mega accounts are the very, very rare people. Um, and so to gain 10,000, that was, I mean, I'm it surprised me for sure. It's interesting to me. I have now seen a, a number of folks in the libertarian movement uh, rocket up um, for a while, although a lot of those end up getting banned from uh, Twitter as well. Sometimes they reboot on other, under other names. Sometimes they get unbanned. But there seems to be this huge degree of latent demand for reading information from people with alternative viewpoints, and then those skyrocket, and then they don't always uh, stay on the platform. Um, you know, fingers crossed. It's very possible Twitter will not verify me. So I'm actually elected. Well, why? To an Right. So I'm currently just under 20,000 followers. And, um, you know, they do claim that if you are elected to public office, they will verify you. So I have been in contact with Twitter, their um, officials, you know, they have like an official channel for this. We've emailed back and forth. I submitted the paperwork that shows that I was elected to office in 2018. I'm currently still elected to this office. Um, it is a community council position. Um, voters act, you know, like it is certifiable and they still won't verify me. And it is funny because I look at some accounts for people who are in similar positions to mine, um, similar offices, and they will have a smaller following and they are certified. So, you know, I don't want to put words into their mouth because they haven't given me a reason to not certify me or verify me, however they want to call it, but they certainly haven't. I'm still waiting for it. And I'm, I am concerned because as you said, other, you know, people, other people with my similar political leanings have been removed just after the, um, the Tom Woods event, Reed Coverdale that had, I think about 18,000 followers was just removed with no prior warning. Um, he made a joke. I don't remember what the joke was. I don't know it, if I saw it. Was, it. it was probably not an appropriate joke for Twitter. It involved violence, but was also clearly a joke. And for the listeners, I interviewed Reed uh, a, a few weeks back. You can find that on the uh, the podcast feed. This was before he made the joke that got him kicked off. And maybe he'll be reinstated, hopefully. So in, in general, I, I wonder about the situation there. It almost seems like they're straddling a line where 
Well, and I think this is true of a lot of social media where clearly their thumb is on the scale and they want their thumb on the scale, but they don't want it on the scale too heavily. It it seems blatant to those of us who, you know, who have been in the movements that have had a lot of people kicked off, but it perhaps hasn't been so blatant that it's, uh, you know, that you can make that, that huge case for it. And the other thing, the other dynamic that I wonder about is that by, you know, by allowing these moments of, you know, of alternative thought to flourish and people like you to rock it up in terms of their following, it also takes the sort of the wind out of the sails of certain alternate platforms. What would be probably the worst for them is if they purged everybody all at once. So again, maybe a little bit like the the boiling frog, you know, you you allow just enough of a little bit of a flourishing so people don't get so, you know, so stepped on so quickly that they all go somewhere else. Um, and right now it is still the game in town is, is that platform. Yep, it absolutely is. And I think you're absolutely correct. You know, they can't remove us all. Otherwise, nobody will be on Twitter, or at least the people, you know, not everyone that that um, that is on Twitter will still remain there. Um, you know, it's funny, in, in not a haha way, but a, um, you know, thoughtful way. Um, Miguel Diaz-Canel, again, the unelected president of Cuba, gave combat orders, essentially started a civil war on national TV, and it has been retweeted and reposted, and he still has a platform. He will not be deplatformed. Same with uh, the dictator of Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro, um, who, you know, we had an interim president in Venezuela, which was Juan Guaido, and then they all kind of got together in Mexico a few weeks ago and decided that uh, Juan Guaido was going to step down, and now it's back to the unelected dictator of Venezuela, and the Maduro regime, and they all still have a following and they all are able to tweet whatever they want. I mean, so Twitter is very much in, in the business of allowing certain people, uh, certainly uh, the Taliban, you know, in Afghanistan, they, they still have are, are able to post. So if it's about removing dangerous content, like the joke that Reed made, or, you know, really, why aren't we demanding that they remove dictators? Why aren't we demanding that they play the level, you know, make it a level playing field? And a story that I think not a lot of people know. So um, going back to this past election, a lot of people don't understand that there was a woman running for office, uh, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, and I had the pleasure of being her um, Hispanic outreach. Um, I was a volunteer position, but I worked on her Hispanic outreach. And the day of the first debate, Facebook removed most of the people on Joe Jorgensen's campaign from Facebook removed all of the gifts, you know, with her, those images that move that you can paste, removed most of the hashtags. So um, I was there live, you know, in living color watching this happen. And um, nobody made a big deal about it because, of course, we're the third party. And, you know, well, you should be a Republican or Democrat if you don't want that to happen. And so it's it's almost like we've gotten to that point where we don't even it doesn't even make the news people don't even really care i think that people have a a deep misunderstanding about the nature of our biased media i don't think it's biased i don't think these platforms are biased i think that a better way to look at it and i have mentioned this on the show before is to think about the dynamic with the uh the harlem globetrotters and their arch rivals so to speak the washington generals the the game that they're playing is the game of the globetrotters winning and so the refs in that context if you make the analogy that the refs are like these platforms or journalists their role is not to present in you know an unbiased or neutral platform or you know a view of reality that's as close to actual reality as possible their role is to make sure that the Harlem Globetrotters win um, and to keep it entertaining along the way so that you tune in and you click on the links and all those other things right so if you're looking at that and you're going oh they're so terribly biased or they have their thumb on the scale or whatever it, it is almost a misunderstanding of the the situation the number one rule of the game is that if you're, uh, you know, if you're applying this analogy to the Libertarian Party or any other really insurgent um, political movement, the rule of the game is those people have to lose. And however, the rules of the game have to be changed in order to make sure that happens, that's going to happen. And I think that it's, 
it's actually if you don't understand that that you're really actually going to be destined as a as a political movement to lose right you you need to understand that you're not it's not enough to just go oh it's unfair that you excluded us from the debate it's unfair that you kicked our page off off facebook those things have to be baked into your thinking you need to go in with the thinking okay so there is a scenario in which the washington generals win but it's not the scenario in which they complain to the refs <laughs> because the, the 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 refs the refs no they're they're not on your team they're on the other team in fact not even on the other team they work for the suits who are in the you know in in the box seats and their their interests are not even remotely connected to a level playing field. Right. Absolutely. I agree 100%, which is why I am so happy to see that these alternative communities, Bitcoin community, for example, the crypto community. Which is huge in Miami, right? Huge in Miami and huge around the world. I mean, we had a Bitcoin convention in 2021 in the you know middle of COVID, and yet it was packed. There were thousands upon thousands of people there. And I was so happy to see that they are very libertarian leaning. So when we talk about the movement, we're talking about the liberty movement. The Libertarian Party is a whole nother thing. And um, people just assume that for whatever reason, the Libertarian Party has to be the one to break this cycle, the one to break through and say, hey, here we are. And I don't think the Libertarian Party is going to do it. And I say this as a lifetime member. I say this as somebody who considers herself a Libertarian. The Libertarian Party is not how we're going to win. We are going to win by changing hearts and minds. And that is that is upon us all. So we can't as libertarians say, hey guys, you know, we don't need a government, but then libertarians are saying our party should do this thing and make us, you know, either we believe in these things that we believe in or we don't. We, the people have to embody this, which is why I think voluntarism is so important. We have to show people that it's, we can make changes. We don't need to wait for the government. I mean, as a matter of fact, going back to the Cuba issue, you know, a lot of our representatives have hosted tons of meetings and you hear them talking about how we're going to provide Wi-Fi to Cuba or we're going to do this thing for Cuba. And none of it has happened. The UN hasn't stepped in. Things don't happen unless the government okay, really so, wants so, Sorry, I just have to ask this because this has been on my mind a lot in terms of what you're talking about and the sort of the hearts and minds versus the pragmatic action. One of the things that kind of shocks me the most in over the past however many months is just how ineffectual the Cuban community in Miami and down here to be to be frank has been at getting those Cuban refugees in so we have a situation we talked about immigrants um, before uh, as we were talking here um, and they you know they've been streaming across the border and meeting with very little resistance and yet the government has been successfully capturing and turning back Cuban uh, Cuban exiles who no doubt face a terrible scenario when they're returned to Cuba and yet the Cuban community here has done nothing to kind to open the floodgates or ease the you know ease the way for so many people who would like to get out of there why are they so you know why are they so weak i guess is my question because they believe that government is going to do the thing that they want them to do and they you know it we haven't convinced enough people that government isn't going to do that for them we haven't convinced enough people i don't feel like people realize they're begging their you know their their senators or their, you know, whatever congressmen. To, why why to not take so direct action? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not upset with you per se. It's just like this issue kind of like, it, it, to me, one of the, one of the, one of the foundational things of being part of a, a community or a tribe or whatever it is, is that you stand up for that tribe, even if it, if it causes you some inconvenience or whatever else it is. And why not just take a whole bunch of boats down there and just get people, you know, get capture them right off the, uh, you know, the, the shores? Why not? Why not make a large scale effort, even if it's going to get some people to get upset with you politically? Why not take that effort and protect your own citizens, your own people as they're trying to get out of there? So personally, um, the reason I'm not going to do that is because that would be a suicide mission um, of epic proportions. So I am not going to send people to Cuba because 
let's assume that they get to Cuba and are able to get their family members and bring them back. After 1996, uh, Bill Clinton signed into law Proclamation 6867, uh, sorry, 6768, no, 6867, um, that states, it happened after the Brothers to the Rescue airplane was downed in Cuba. And it, it says that United States citizens cannot get into their into any vessel and travel to Cuba without the United States explicit permission. Um, and it leads to 10 years in prison, over $250,000 in fines and confiscation of your vessel. So let's assume that I get a large amount of people to get in their boats and go to Cuba and pick up their people. On the way back, even if they make it out of the United States, when the Coast Guard will not allow that, um, on the way back, we will all be jailed and mass terrible things will happen to us. So in a free country, we're not free to do that. Number one. Number two, I am more of a pacifist. I don't, I'm not going to send people into battle if I'm not willing to do it myself. And I feel like that is a battle. And then just number three, um, you need to change hearts and minds, not only here in the United States, in Cuba, people have this, this belief that their government is going to eventually solve all their problems. So it starts slowly. And that is, again, why I'm, I'm doing this um, effort to bridge the community. Cubans in the, in, on the island need this education. And um, we have an interesting opportunity coming up. Uh, I'm you know, just starting to lay the foundation for it, but there's a country in, um, in I guess, Europe kind of, it's right underneath Russia, it's called Georgia. Um, but I have to say that it's another country because when I tell people about Georgia, they're like, oh yeah, I was just in Atlanta the other day. So um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's an entirely different Georgia out there in the world. There is. And Georgia is surprisingly very libertarian leaning. And also they don't have a, um, a visa requirement for Cuban nationals. So we are in talks at the moment to potentially host some type of um, conference in Cuba for Cubans who want to come and learn. You have to keep in mind that for 62 years, the only party allowed in Cuba is a communist party. So Cubans are woefully unaware of not only civics, but they're woefully unaware of different political leanings. You cannot read a Hayek or a Mises book in Cuba. You know, Yes, they have great literacy rates, but you can't read whatever you want to read. You can't read about you know, other political systems. So Cubans need a form of education. And this is something that I am pushing very much, um, just had a talk with people who put together um, web, you know, web education series and they have methods of being able to distribute. So there are things that we could be doing. I am but one person. And, you know, when I go and, and, and try and talk to people about these efforts, they're very excited for it. So I'm hoping to build more of a coalition of people, of like-minded people that want to help Cuba legitimately. We have to stop thinking that, you know, Marco Rubio or Maria Elvira Salazar or, you know, one of these elected officials, just because they're Cuban doesn't mean that they are fighting for the same things that we're fighting for. Just because they are, you know, Cuban, you know, they, they have Cuban family doesn't necessarily mean that they're fighting for it. I mean, look at all the other politicians we have. They're all American, but are they all fighting for our American values? I say probably so we need to stop saying there's like that uh meme on the internet of like you know the the even though the trees were screaming as they were being chopped down the forest kept voting for the axe because the handle was made out of wood and they thought that they were one of them at some point we have to realize that even if you elect a cuban to office they're not necessarily going to fight for the same things that we are we need to build a community a bridge between the diaspora here and the Cubans on the island where we were actually communicating and helping them achieve the things that they want to achieve. And what they want to achieve might be different than what we want to achieve. My goal is not to tell them how they're going to, you know, move forward or how they're going to end communism or how they're going to, you know, do whatever. My goal is to just support them in what they need and the education that they want so that they have, um, you know, an ability to, to actually fight. Well, well put. Martha, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.